Hey, good morning. Uh, my hearing's bad, but anyway. Now I'm just uh, just playing with you. Welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale. Open your Bibles today. We love to study God's Word together here. Luke chapter 10 is the passage of the morning. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. There's always a handout that'll help you as you want to follow along. Maybe take a few notes and and uh, or respond with our um, daily encounters with God on the back of those handouts. I'd like to just welcome you to Seacoast. If you're new, I'd love to connect with you out in the plaza afterwards, get to know you better, and help you find your way around this place. If we can help you, myself, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Jonathan, who is doing the announcements up here, any of us would be happy to help you. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, uh, we worship you by uh, listening to you, as well as singing to you, talking to you, praying to you. So, Father, right now, we give the gift of our attention. We want you to work in our lives and teach us. Uh, we so appreciate your word. Thank you for that the Lord Jesus uh, loved us enough that he didn't leave us without a clear message about life. So I pray today as we study another passage about how you'd like to renovate our lives, what you do to change us and make us more of the people you designed us to be. We, uh, we pray that you do that work in us as we engage with your word together, in Christ's name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. A guy named Victor Hugo once said this, he said, There is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. In other words, that idea that kind of pops on the scene and all of a sudden there's an aha moment and people just get it and it just kind of goes viral. It's, it's just an idea that you don't have to sell it, you don't have to market it, because it's so right on target that it works, and people talk about it. Today, as we engage in another story about renovation, I want to look at a topic that I think is that kind of an idea. Would it interest you to think about something with me this morning if I told you these four things? It is so simple that I've never met someone who can't do it. It is so right that I've never met someone who would oppose it. That begins to narrow the topics, doesn't it? It is so affordable that it fits every single budget, and it is so powerful that it literally has been known to change people's lives. Now that's not a bad list, right? So does that interest you? Then listen to Jesus this morning more closely than you've ever listened before. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is our passage. We're going to set it up with the context, then we're going to go to the story, and then we're going to talk about the implications of that in our lives today. So go to the the story with me first, and we'll just kind of begin to read it, and I'll set the context as we go. It picks up with the, the setting in verse 25 of chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' movement, as we've been seeing through this whole series of renovation, gospel stories about grace at work in people's lives and how God does that, begins with a similar scenario that Jesus is getting a lot of pluses, but he's also got a lot of opposition. He's got people that are excited about what he's doing. He's also continually having opposition, especially from religious leaders. Here's how the story picks up again with a little more of that opposition in the context. The context, verse 25, says a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, 
saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this should be a common question. After all, Jesus is a religious teacher. He's a religious rabbi, and, and people are interested in this. So what's going on here, though, is that it notice that the motive of this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is to trap Jesus. His motive is to test Jesus. It, the implication is he's trying to divide the people over Jesus. Get Jesus to say something that some people would agree with and other people would disagree with. And Because, you know, religion does that, right? Sometimes when you start talking religion, people divide over it. And they wanted to divide Jesus' following. So this lawyer, and again, let me reshape that. This is not really an attorney like we think of a lawyer. Now, okay, we're not down on lawyers. Today's bad guy in the story is an attorney. Well, but he's not really an attorney. He's a lawyer in the sense that he is an expert in the Mosaic law or the law of God. So he is a man that spends his time in his life studying the details of what does God expect of us? What does God's law say? What does it not say? And the Jews were good at this. In fact, they were too good at it. They kind of become obsessed with it to the point that they often fell into the trap of misunderstanding the point of the Old Testament Scriptures to begin to think that, you know, if we just obey the law, if I can just obey the law perfectly, if I can be more careful to never vibrate the rules, then God will love me and I'll get into heaven. So he says to Jesus, what's it take to get eternal life? Now everyone knows that nobody follows the law perfectly. But this expert in the law, he, he would often decide, well, okay, so if you are going to obey the law to like honor the Sabbath, here are a list of things you could do on the Sabbath. Here's a list of no-nos on the Sabbath. You know, so they were always trying to more finely define the rules. So he's basically saying, what rules are most important? What's it going to take for me to have eternal life? We'll see where Jesus lands on this is what he's thinking. And then he can divide the people. Verse 26, so Jesus answers this uh, expert in the law and he, and he answers him with a question. He says, so what's written in the law? How's it read to you? So he actually refuses to be trapped by the guy, but instead he bounces the question back to him. So what's the law say? You're an expert in it. What's it how's it read to you? And the man answered, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from this famous passage that every expert in the law would know. This is kind of the basis of the law. This is the same passage that Jesus, elsewhere in the Gospels, quotes when asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two kind of go together. So Jesus likes this answer. And Jesus begins to roll with it. In verse 28, he says to the man, okay, you've answered correctly. Just do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Now, this all of a sudden flips it. Because now the attorney, the questioner, the one trying to trap Jesus, begins to realize, uh, okay, I think I just got myself in trouble here. Because he's thinking, I don't do this very well. I mean, anyone who looks at the law and says, love God, and especially when you add the descriptors and love your neighbor and add the descriptors, are in, you're in trouble. Now, if I shorten this down and say, love God, love people, a lot of us could say, I, I do that. I, I do that. I'm pretty good at that. I love God. How many of you love God? Raise your hand. Great. How many of you love people? Raise your hand. 
Good, okay. How many of you hate people and God? Raise your hand. I'm just kidding, okay. But, you know, most of us would vote pretty well. We'd say, wow, love God, love people. But the passage doesn't say that. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'd say, how many people do that? Raise your hand. And all of a sudden, at least for me, my hand kind of goes, well... You know, and I bring it down. Because I realize, looking at my own heart, that I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neither do you. Neither, none of us do that perfectly, do we? And then I say, okay, do I love people? Raise your hand. Whoop, every hand goes up. And then I say, switch it. But do, do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? And again, I kind of go, whoop, you know. And it goes from, yay, I do this, I love people, to, whoop, you know, probably not. Because most of the time, even when I'm having a good day loving people, do I love people in a way that would be defined as loving people as I love myself? Do I care for people as I care for myself? Do I go out of my way to take care of them as I go out of my way to take care of myself? Answer, probably not. So this lawyer, though, he's sharp, he's well trained in the law, and he asks a second question. And this time, the motive is, I need, to, I, need to, I need to help myself here. So his second question is, all right, well, but Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Um, yeah, and his motive, it says, is seeking to justify himself. Verse 29, he says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? In other words, the trapper has become trapped. <laughs> the, the, the one on the hunt to try to trap Jesus is now feeling like this is not real comfortable for me because I know that if that's what it takes to have eternal life, I don't qualify. Unless I can define, well, okay, but you know, let's define what this means by my neighbor because everybody knows we can't love everybody like ourselves. So what's that mean? Maybe my neighbor, you know, this, this person next door, does it, you know, he's seeking some help in defining more narrowly who's my neighbor. Because if it's the people in my block or the people that are kind of in my family or the people that are in my closest circle of acquaintance even, maybe, maybe I can, you know, because it's my neighbor. It's not everyone. It's my love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, who's the neighbor? So seeking to justify himself, Jesus again responds with an answer. But before I give the answer, let me clarify something. Jesus wasn't showing this guy how it is possible to earn eternal life. I just don't want you to miss that. But how it is impossible to earn it. Because on the surface, it sounds like the guy says, hey, what do you do to get eternal life? Well, just love God. You know, you've got to be sold out. Love God with a passion. Give, you know, give everything to loving God. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll have eternal life. But we know that that's not Jesus' intent. Jesus isn't trying to show him how it's possible to have eternal life. He's trying to show him why it's impossible to earn eternal life. Because this guy realizes that's why he feels trapped. That's why he needs to better define neighbor in some way to get out of this mess. Because he realizes, I don't really live up to this. And Jesus often does this. Jesus often teaches and says things like, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, at one point he says, well, just be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. That's all. <laughs> right? Okay, that's an easy way something to get done. How holy are you? Like God? No, I don't think so. You know, so Jesus isn't really in these statements. He's not telling 
He's not telling righteous people how to earn their way into heaven. He instead, he is helping people that are self-righteous understand you got a long way to go if you think you could ever earn your way into heaven. And that's why the rest of the story in the Gospels is Jesus unfolding this gift of grace, unfolding why he's going to die on the cross for our sins, unfolding the fact that if you place your faith in me, you can have eternal life because your works will never get it done. So I kind of wanted to pause just to make sure you don't miss that because I don't want a new person, a visitor here thinking Jesus means, okay, if I just work harder, loving God more, loving people more, then I'm going to go to heaven. It's actually quite the opposite. So this man is feeling this impossibility of living up to this command to love God completely and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So he thinks, maybe it'll help me to define neighbor. So he asks the second question. So who is my neighbor? But I I wanted you to see his intent. And that's where we go into the story of the morning. So now here's the heart of the morning. Pick it up with me. So Jesus replied, who's your neighbor? Let me tell you a story. And again, I love that Jesus doesn't fall for the traps. He doesn't fall for the easy answer. He says, so let me tell you a story. He says, a man was going down from Jericho, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Uh, You know, call him Ryan. And and, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. I just, a name just came out of the blue. I think of the most holy person I know, you know, yeah. And then he says, and and then also a Levite. You say, call him Dale. Okay, I thought you, you missed your chance, bro. But anyway, okay. Yeah, okay. A Levite, another religious guy, call him Dale. You know, he came by uh, to the place and he saw the guy and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, I won't ask which of you want to be the Samaritan in the story. Okay, a lot of you would like this, okay. Jonathan, is Jonathan the Samaritan? Okay, I'll, I'll work with Jonathan. I'm sorry. Okay, but he's probably closer to the Samaritan than Ryan and I. So we'll call it the Samaritan Jonathan. That's fair for the morning. Okay, so Jonathan, or the Samaritan, who came, which means he has bad theology, but he's loving. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he was on the journey. We're playing this too far. Here we go. But the Samaritan who was on, the, on a journey came upon the man, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, his own horse or, 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 you know, or donkey, whatever he was using to travel. He put him on his own, and he walked, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of the guy. And, and the next day... He took out two denarii, which means two full days of wages. Uh, picture it, 150 to 200 bucks. And he gave it to the innkeeper. And he said, you take care of him and whatever more you spend. He gave him a visa card. Or at least an open bill. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you. He gives this unknown innkeeper an open check. Which means also, by the way, He's coming back to follow up on the guy. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into robber's hands? And he said, well, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, then you go and do likewise. Wow, what a story. See, this story is an incredible story that 
especially in the culture of the day, they would have related to. It says he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this man on this journey. Now you've got to just picture, why does it say they went down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Because it's about a 17-mile downhill stretch to get from one to the other. It's not only a 17-mile distance between the two, it's, it's a very dangerous journey. It's a journey that takes a person down this long stretch from about 3,000 feet elevation to about 1,000 feet below sea level at one point. So it's got a lot of downhill to the first part of the journey, the first 17 miles at least. So it goes through a very dangerous part of the journey. That's my point. And in this journey, it's so dangerous... Because when you're going downhill, it's got to wind its way down around the mountains. There's a lot of caves in this area, places where robbers and thieves would hide out and, and, and be able to surprise people. It's not very well protected. In fact, it had a nickname. It was nicknamed the Bloody Way because of the crime that went on there. In today's metaphor or today's language, Jesus might have told the story like this. There was a man that, that walked 17 miles through the heart of Los Angeles or through the heart of Tijuana or through the heart of this or that, through the worst neighborhood in, in the town, and he had to go down 17 miles of dark alleys controlled by gangs. And his skin wasn't the right color to even be in the neighborhood. That's this story. And then he gets robbed and he gets beaten. Now the guy, by the way, must not have been too poor. He wasn't rich and he wasn't poor. You know how I know this? Number one is he wasn't a poor man because it says the robbers fell on him and they robbed him and they stripped him of his clothes. Now that tells me he was dressed well enough that they wanted the clothes as well as his money. So he wasn't dirt poor. He also wasn't real wealthy, most likely. You know why? Because wealthy people never traveled this route alone because they would be able to afford bodyguards or a small little army to go with them because you just don't go from Jerusalem to Jericho by yourself, especially if you're wealthy or carrying much of value. So this guy's probably, picture him as a common, everyday, middle-class person, maybe like one of us, and, and he's traveling down this road, and he gets mugged, and he gets robbed, and he gets stripped, and he gets left half dead. And two religious people, two religious leaders, the priest, the Levite, come by, and they just kind of walk to the other side of the road and pass him by. And then a Samaritan comes, and you've heard us teach before about the Samaritans. Samaritans was a group of people that did not like the Jews. They didn't even talk to each other usually. They hated one another. They detested one another. They disagreed theologically on things. You know, the, the, the Samaritans were a, 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 an offset of, of, of Judaism that that only believed in a portion of the Old Testament, not all of it. So they disagreed on the Scriptures. They disagreed on where you should worship. They thought you should worship in Mount Gerizim. And, and the Jews said, no, Jerusalem is our capital. That's where you go to, to worship. And you know, So they, they had disagreement, animosity, so much so that in the ministry of Jesus, every time Jesus encounters a Samaritan, people are shocked that He even talks to them. So you just need to see that this is very much a racial, racially tense, theologically tense, uh, culturally tense situation in which the last person you would expect to stop to hurt to help this Jewish man who had been robbed would be a Samaritan. So his theology was a little shaky. 
But he stopped. So Jesus then asked the guy, so who's the neighbor? Who's the neighbor? And the guy has to say, well, I guess it was the Samaritan. And then he gives the call at the end of the story in verse 37. And the call was very simple. Now you go and do likewise. This is what God wants you to do. This is what I mean when I say love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not saying your physical neighbor. I'm talking about any person whose need you see, whose need you're able to meet. God wants us to care. So what do we learn from this story for us today? Let me try to take away a few things. Number one, as we look at this, what I call in the second part of your outline, the call to compassion. At the heart of this is a call to compassion, a call to love in action, not just words, to not just feel it, but do it. It's a call to compassion in which three things to me are are clear that I don't want us to miss. Number one, that compassion and loving in action is the mark of true discipleship of Jesus. It is impossible when you read this story to think, you know something, I love God, but I really don't like people. God says, I don't care if you don't like people. Your love for me needs to help you love people. That's the definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not wrapped up in how you know, just the fact that you come to church, although coming to church is important because you know the Scriptures say gather weekly for worship and learning and teaching and encouraging one another. So that is important. But, but at the hallmark, at the pinnacle of what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus are these two things. One, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But also, then let that flow into loving your neighbor as yourself. It's a mark of true discipleship. I want to give you a little flood of Scripture. So I'm not expecting you to, to, to catch all of this, but I want you to get the overall impression when you start in the beginning of the Bible till the end, this theme abounds as a reflection of the heart of God. Let's go back all the way to the law. In Deuteronomy 15.11 says this, For the poor will never cease to be in your land. Another place in Scripture it says, For the poor you will always have among you. Have you ever heard that phrase? And see, we almost use that phrase, Can I, I have almost used that phrase in the past, to legitimize ignoring the poor, because it's like, okay, always going to have poor people. I know I can't solve world poverty, so I need to do something else. You know, because the poor you'll always have among you. But listen to what it says. The poor will never cease to be in your land. They're always going to be there. Therefore, I command you, get on with life and worry. Don't ignore them. Okay. It says, no, so you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to the, your needy, and to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy. If you jump to the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Psalms, let me give you an example. Good news, bad news from Proverbs. Good news is Proverbs 19.17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. When you give to the poor, it says it's like you're giving a gift to God. And God will repay him for his good deed. You are promised rewards whenever you are generous with the poor. The bad news, Proverbs 21 flips it around. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself out to God and not be answered. Now, that's quite, whoa, that gets my attention. Because when I cry out to God, I kind of want God to pay attention, right? So do you. This passage actually says that if you close your ear to the cry of the poor, then God's not going to listen to you. Don't ask me to explain that, but that's what it says. 
I know two places in the Bible where God threatens not to listen to your prayers. This is the first. If you ignore the poor. The other is if you're a man and you ignore the needs of your wife. It actually, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, look it up. says, husbands, live, in your, live with your wife in an understanding way. Listen to her. Try to understand her, because sometimes they're hard to understand. And God knows that. But, you know, but listen to her in an understanding way and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And he says, or God says, I will not hear your prayers. Now, I think there is a version of that for women also that flips it around. And you know where it is? If you find it, tell me where it is. <laughs> I've been looking for it for years, okay? But I just know God loves men too. So it has to be in there somewhere. But I can't find it. But the reality is, God, that's a, that's a heavy thing when God says, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't do this, then don't come crying to me and expecting me to listen to you. So I think taking seriously husbands loving their wives in, a, in an understanding, loving way and loving the poor are two very important things to the heart of God. I can't explain it, but it's right there. Let's go on. Let's get out of Proverbs, especially let's get off the topic of loving women. Here we go. Proverbs. How about the prophets? The prophets, Isaiah 58.10. If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will shine in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. What a great promise. Isaiah 58. Here's another one. Let's jump to the Gospels. Did Jesus ever talk about this? Well, obviously here. But even in Luke 4, Jesus talks about his ministry when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. We know Jesus preached the Gospel to the wealthy also. In fact, Ryan did a great job teaching on one of these passages just a few weeks ago when Jesus encountered a wealthy taxpayer, a tax, not payer, tax collector. The taxpayer is poor, tax collector is rich. But, you know, remember that? So I mean, you know, Jesus loved the wealthy, he loved the poor, but in here it emphasizes, preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to captives, recover the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, Luke 4.18. The gospels, Acts, maybe James, uh, or Acts and uh, the epistles, let me let James be the summary. James 1.27, pure and undefiled Religion in the sight of God, not people, but God, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. So what we see is this. At Seacoast, we will not settle for a definition of being a disciple of Jesus that doesn't emphasize love. Loving your neighbor as yourself. At the same time, we will continually emphasize that no matter how hard you try to love God, love people, you will never be able to earn your way into heaven that way. It's the grace of God that grabs our heart, and that's the next point. Point one is this is a true mark of discipleship. So if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, I just got to lovingly tell you, you got to plug this into something that you work on and care about. That is, loving your neighbor as well as your God. Number two, this love for others flows out of our love for God. 
that it's rooted in our love for God, and then it overflows into people. It's clear the great commandment begins with love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, because a passionate love for God, which is rooted in understanding the passionate sacrifice of Christ, rooted in understanding the good news of Jesus and what He did when He loved you, loved me, died for us on the cross. Man, when I understand that God loved me that much, then for me to go and be a jerk and not love other people just is a disconnect in the teaching of Jesus. So you've got to, it's rooted in a deep love for God, which is why we'll talk often here at Seacoast about the grace of God. You can't earn it. It's a free gift. And then that love motivates me to freely love and give to others. Now you may be thinking, I was thinking when I was working on this, yeah, but you know, sometimes I just don't feel like it and I don't want to be a hypocrite. I mean, anyone else thinking that? I was thinking that. I try to think what you're going to think when I prepare my sermons. You realize that? It's a scary week. But, you know, but yeah, I was thinking, yeah, they're probably thinking, yeah, but I don't want to be a hypocrite. So, God, please help me feel more compassion. And then I'll start doing it. And, and it led me to this observation. Doing what is right in the Scriptures, doing what is right when, even when you don't feel like it, is not hypocritical, it's honorable. There's a lot of times in my life when the Bible tells me to do something and I don't feel like it th- today. Maybe tomorrow I'll feel like it. But, you know, I don't, God doesn't want us following our feelings. He wants us following Him. So sometimes I need to step out even when I don't feel a lot of compassion for the poor. I don't really care much about the people in Africa. They're a long ways away. I like to forget about them. I don't really care about the people up in L.A. and the Norris's ministry. You know, I, you know, and God, please help me feel more. When I feel more, I'll do more. But that is not the way to live your life. What we see in Scripture is saying, God, I will obey you. I will do what is right. I will care for the poor. I will pray for them, give to them. I will care for my neighbor, whether they're poor or wealthy, because if they have a need and they're my next door neighbor, I should care for them. And for sure, we're surrounded by gated communities and million dollar homes lived in by people who are desperate for help with life. Amen? Yeah. So this is not a sermon about ignoring the wealthy. It's a sermon about challenging all of us to care for the poor, care for people, care for whoever you come along, like this Samaritan. He came along this middle-class guy who had been mugged, and he cared for him. And he was willing to pay a price to do it. And that's what God wants us to be energized by as disciples. So number one, it's got to be part of our profile of what we want to be as we grow to be more like Jesus. It's a part of being a disciple. Number two, it's got to be rooted in us nurturing our love for God, which is why worship is so important, by the way. It's why it's so important for you. I often encourage you to come early, come on time, come every week unless you're sick or out of town because weekly worship nourishes your love for God. And if we don't nourish your love for God, you will eventually not obey Him. And it leads to a painful life. So we we want you to worship and develop your love for God as disciples. The third thing I learned from this story is this, that it's more than a feeling, therefore. 
but it's, it's the demonstrated love of Jesus. It is demonstrating in a tangible, visible way love. Our staff and elders have been talking a lot this year about how we can sharpen our vision for what do we want to accomplish as a church. And one thing that bubbled up to the top, and I think it's from the Spirit of God and the Scriptures, is that we need to emphasize not just that we are disciples of Jesus, but that we are disciples who love in a demonstrated way like Jesus. That we are demonstrating the love of Christ throughout the city of Encinitas and whatever other city you live in. We are demonstrating the love and compassion of Jesus for the church and the people in Africa that don't have nearly what we have. That we are demonstrating the love of Jesus in tangible ways. And that's what we're going to be emphasizing. You can look through... uh, Look around the world and you see that the needs are huge. I encourage you, if you want to be challenged and stimulated, read the book I mentioned last week. This is two weeks in a row. Jen Hatmaker, love that name. Jen Hatmaker's book called Interrupted. Um, It's a great book. It's when Jesus wrecks your comfortable Christianity. And it's full of information. It's full of information on the reality of the world we live in. I'll just give you a, a couple samples. You realize today that someone dies of hunger every 3.6 seconds? 3.6 seconds. I did the math on that, by the way. That's 667 during my sermon. If I end on time. And I seldom do. So that's 700 plus during this sermon. Alone. 22 million per year. Preventable diseases, or die of preventable diseases, excuse me, that's 22 million die of preventable diseases, 10 million of which are children. There's 143 million orphans. There's 27 million people living in some sort of slavery, either sex slavery or work slavery in some way in the world estimated today, which by the way is the highest number of slaves to ever live in human history. Slavery is more active today in more subtle ways than it ever was when it was legal to own slaves. The needs are huge. Just one more I would throw out as an example. 780 billion, excuse me, 780 million people lack basic clean water that you can drink and not get sick. and, And yet we as Americans consume 26 billion dollars no 26 billion liters per year of bottled water when to be blunt i could drink out of my garden hose and be healthy with all due respect to the filter on the sink okay i i I choose the filter on the sink but i don't have to have it i grew up drinking out of the crazy garden hose in the backyard and i did fine so did some of you. But our kids won't touch that. It might stain their teeth or some other dastardly thing. Anyway, forgive me. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't drink our bottled water, but while we're drinking it, we better do it with a mind toward providing basic clean water for the world. Which is one of the things that our partners in Rwanda and Congo and places are doing. This is why we want you to get involved with us not just here, but in Africa. So I gave you a series of phrases under what it means then to make it more than a feeling. 
If it's more than a feeling, it awakens our eyes to see. It calls our heart to care. I've typed these out so you don't have to write them down, but just get the big idea. In the story, the Samaritan, he noticed the guy first, and then he didn't just walk around him. He had compassion. He calls our heart to care. He moves our hands to act. He stooped low to serve the guy. He didn't just kind of you know, say, say to his, uh, maybe a slave traveling with him, hey, would you help this guy over in the ditch and kind of put him on the extra horse and when we get down there, I'll drop him off so somebody sees him and helps him and maybe I'll leave some money behind. But he got involved with the guy. He put him on his horse. He nursed his wounds. He invited him in. He spent the night with him at the inn and then he paid for the next couple days and for his treatment and he said, and I'm going to come back and check on you. I love the fact that after the first sermon, when you're going to hear in a minute about these bags that I want to encourage you to make for the homeless out in the plaza, that's what those tables are there for, that somebody who had listened to the 9 o'clock sermon went out, there was a homeless gal, evidently, on the street, but instead of giving her one of our bags, they invited her into our kitchen to have a hot breakfast prepared for our worship team. Because we feed our worship team a hot breakfast every morning. Do you know that? That's why they're so sleepy in the second service. But anyway, <laughs> just kidding. But I love that because they, they got involved. It means why God doesn't want us just to hand out bags to the homeless. He wants us to hand them some help and then also maybe say, hey, if you have the time, engage in a conversation. Get to know them. Invite them to Seacoast. Give with generosity, love the hard to love, speak the truth in love as you get a chance to point them toward Jesus and His grace. These are just all tips on how to make it more than a feeling, but love in action. I've got to tell you one story that illustrates this. Um, a few years back, after a Sunday morning service, and the reason I remember is Super Bowl Sunday, one of the holy days um, in our culture. And... I left church on Super Bowl Sunday and I was confronted with a man and his dog that were settling in. They were settling in um, under the steps of the church. I was the last one to leave the parking lot and he probably thought everybody was gone when he was kind of claiming his space for the night. And, and my, um, my daughter and I actually talked to the guy and um, my daughter was with me and, and uh, I just felt compassion for the guy. He first apologized. He says, I'm sorry, sir, I'll leave. And I said, no, 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 you're welcome. You're welcome to stay here, but can I help you? Which is kind of a dumb question. A guy moving in under your staircase probably needs help. But instead of how can I help you, I just said, can I help you? He said, well, you know, a meal would be nice. I said, you know, some, my daughter and I will run down to McDonald's on the corner. I said, what's your favorite burger? And he told me, oh, just give me a, give me a, double something and I said fine I'll do that and I went to walk off I said stay right here I went to leave as I went to leave um he um he said you know sir wait a minute could, could I get fries with that so I just thought you know some I'll just supersize it I'll get the fries and the shake and the burger you know I'm, I'm kind of feeling like Jesus at this point um but then I go to walk off again and he says wait a minute sir could you get one for my dog? And then I thought, okay, 
even Jesus wouldn't get one for your dog. But, but, but I was wrong, because Jesus loves dogs too. I realize that. So I said, okay, I'll get, I'll get your dog a Happy Meal. He says, that'd be great. So I went, I bought a Happy Meal for the dog, and I bought the double-double and the fries and supersized everything and brought it back to the guy. And then I began to really feel convicted. Because I knew in a couple hours I was going to a feast made for men in a gated community in a beautiful new home to watch the Super Bowl for Super Bowl party, a church Super Bowl party for men only, okay, with male food, okay, you know, the big stuff, no little trays with vegetables that you dip, all right, okay, (laughs) and so I, so I just, I just invited the guy, I thought, you know, sir, I said, I got an idea, I said, about four o'clock, if you'd like to go with me, I'd like to swing by and pick you up and take you to a Super Bowl party, unless you have someplace else to watch the game. Which, of course, he said, I got nowhere to watch the game, you know. So, so I, I swung by, picked him up, and I thought, I don't know what these friends of mine are going to think. It was a guy hosting it in his brand new home in a gated community, first social event in his brand new home. Everything's new. So Pastor Joe shows up with the homeless guy, you know, and the dog, and, and we, uh, so we uh, tie the dog up, and we take him in. But, but the, the long story is, I just felt like God wants us to do more than just feed this guy. So we had a chance to talk to him, and share with him. A lot of guys were very friendly to him and he enjoyed the whole party and didn't even watch the game. He just hung at the table <laughs> and chowed, okay? But it was great. And, and, but then I got thinking even more. I thought, you know, guys, this guy, is, I, he told us he's got to get to San Diego to connect with family. Everyone has family in San Diego if they're homeless. Do you realize that? So he's, he's traveling here. So, so he says, uh, I said to the guys, the guy left the room to go to the restroom. And I said, you guys, well, you know, while, uh, let's call him John. John's out of the room. I said, let me ask, I said, I don't want this guy walking to San Diego. I said, Here's 20 bucks out of my pocket. I want some guys to match it. We're going to buy him a bus ticket. And we passed the hat around. We got more than enough for a bus ticket. And uh, so I, I, I told him, he said, oh, man, greatest thing you could ever do for me. We prayed for him. Um, you know, he said he wanted to, to, he wanted to, he appreciated our love. So, so on the way home, I take him to the bus station. I walk him in. I buy the bus ticket for San Diego, put it in his hand, pray with him, and I leave. Man, I was really feeling pretty good because I don't do this very often. And I was feeling like, you know, God is really working in me. Uh, this is a Holy Spirit moment. And, 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 and I'm, the next day off, I, I have Mondays off, Becky and I are driving south on the freeway. And as we're driving south on the freeway, I'm literally telling her this story and feeling very holy. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the story, there was the guy and his dog with his thumb out on the road. And I lost my holiness. <laughs> you know, I said, Ugh. I said, she said, what's the matter? I said, you know the guy I just told you about? We just passed him. He cashed in his bus ticket. That ungrateful, you know what? And then I realized, okay, it's not my job to make sure I never get fooled or ripped off. It's my job to show the compassion of Jesus in those moments where I see a need that I'm able to meet and I feel prompted by God to do it. Because we all know we can't do this with every single person you meet. Um, but, and, uh, and I think I learned a lesson there. That someday when I stand before God and God talks to Dale about his life, God, I'd rather have God say, Dale, you were a little naive down there on planet Earth and got ripped off several times. <laughs> 
than to have God say, Dale, I died for you on the cross and you were a cold-hearted jerk. Just because you were afraid people might rip you off. So, what does God want us to do as a church? I think He wants us to have a vision to build disciples who demonstrate the love of Jesus. We're going to be working on that. And I got a lot of room to grow in it. So do you. We'll do it together. As we do that, as that is our vision, we want to go local and better loving Encinitas. But as we do that, we don't want to just be loving Sunset High School or Ocean Knoll. We want to be doing, we want you to be doing the things in your everyday world. And that's not a church program, that's a lifestyle that we want to encourage in you. But if you have ideas of how we can better love Encinitas, Jonathan is going to be at a table in the plaza today, Pastor Jonathan, who was up here earlier, with a clipboard to write down your ideas. So if you want to help out, get more involved, help be a part of a team, or even you have new ideas, we welcome your ideas, your feedback. We can't do everything. But you can do whatever God prompts you to do. Today, to help stimulate this, though, I had a crazy idea on Wednesday. I went to Costco, and I thought, you know, what if when I see a homeless person or a person in need, what if I had a bag of food that's healthy but nutritious but tasty uh, that I could just give to them instead of giving them money or a bus ticket? And So here's what we're going to do. As soon as the service is over, you go out to the plaza, and I went to Costco, and the church paid for it. I'm not that much like Jesus, but, um, or else I would have paid for it. Well, I haven't turned it in yet. I'll, I'll think about that later. <laughs> okay, I've got to process that before. But the reality is, you know, the church is paying for this, and, and at least the first time, and we bought enough for 300 bags of food, and you make the bags, put a sticker on them, put a little message from the church that tells them that God loves them, we love them, Jesus loves them, and you put a message and some food in the bag, you staple it shut, put a sticker on the outside that says Seacoast Cares. And you keep several of those bags in your trunk or in your backseat of your car so that when you have an opportunity, you can give it out, but also maybe even stop and sit and talk with our neighbors. Just one simple application of the morning. We also are going to do a sports camp this summer that you're going to hear more about next week, so I'll save that for the future. We're going to be going global to love on Africa. That's why we keep this map up to remind us that we as a church are committed to Rwanda, the Empower a Hero program that those tags represent. If you want to learn about that, pick up a brochure, pray about it. Consider joining the others who are on that map in supporting people who are really bringing compassion to the people of Rwanda. We're going to send a Congo team in October to do a women's conference on leadership and pastoral training for pastors and also explore the work of the Tabitha Center that's helping prostitutes have a better option than selling their bodies. If you're interested in that, talk to Jonathan in the plaza. We need people for those teams. Tanzania, Rwanda, there's a lot going on. In fact, Laura and Kathy are here with us in town. Our 
our touch points in Tanzania. I've asked them to hang out around the Africa map after the service. If you have an interest in what they were talking about, find them there. So simple. So simple. Everybody can understand it. So affordable. Everybody can afford it. No matter what they think about church, never met a person yet, that doesn't vote for compassion. As a church, let's make it part of who we are. Pray with me. Father God, thank You for the chance to worship You this morning. Thank You for the chance to even now turn our hearts to worship and give to You even. But Father, help all of our worship, help all of our gifts, help all of our giving, serving, going to flow out of a deep love for God and hopefully a deeper and deeper compassion for people. Thank you for your grace that loves us and forgives us and accepts us just the way we are, even on our bad days, our selfish days. But may you, through the power of Christ, make us a people who are known as lovers of people. In Christ's name, use these gifts for your kingdom as we give. Amen.